This is Off The Ball Breakfast. G-Mac on G-Mac. Oh, Jesus. Are you a tattoo kind of guy? Tattoos, uh, no tattoos. <laughs> the fact that I'm doing an impression beside Conor Murray here is ridiculous. Subscribe to the Off The Ball Breakfast podcast on the Off The Ball app now. The Women's World Cup Show. On Off The Ball. With sure non-stop protection deodorant. Official sponsor of the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023. All right, I'm delighted to say we're going to Sydney now to join Rachel O'Sullivan, co-founder at Girls on the Ball. Rachel, good evening to you. It is good evening. How are you? Uh, Have you got tickets for the final? I do. I'm accredited, so I'll be there pitch side of my camera. Amazing. So uh, as this tournament has built up, one of the big stories was that it kind of tipped over into a massive cultural moment in Australia. Is there any sense of a letdown because the final doesn't involve the home team? Um, not that I've really seen. Like even now, we're still passing by people out walking in the park or on the street, and they're still talking about the football. They're still talking about the match. Um, there's still signage and everything up everywhere. And I think the fact that Australia got so far, and um, there hasn't really been a huge drop off, to be honest. I mean, there'll be a bit of a drop off. There's disappointment, but I think the outpouring of support and love for what they've done in this tournament is definitely still there. Yeah, and I think that's really important as well, isn't it? Because like um, pre-tournaments, we heard there was issues around sponsorship because the market, the times of the day isn't great. But actually, what you need is a home country to really get behind it for the legacy of the tournament to be a transformative moment for football in Australia, but then for FIFA uh, to really recognise, oh, hang on a second, this can take over somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And like, even I was in uh, Auckland for the semi-final between Spain and Sweden, and there was still the stadium was pretty much sold out I think it was 40,000 and, and New Zealand got knocked out in the group stages so even you know without the, the host still there over New Zealand they're still smashing records still getting thousands and thousands out of the, the stadiums and the same same here in Australia I, I've actually been blown away by the numbers and the crowd um, at this tournament you know especially at the games that don't have the hosts in them it's been absolutely phenomenal the, We were hearing reports that the semi-final with Australia was the most watched television event in Australian history yeah, incredible. Um, and it's been, it was pretty special to be in Sydney at the time, uh, in the days leading up to it. As I said, you know, you're hearing these conversations everywhere. You know, we had these two old ladies behind us in the coffee shop talking about how they were going to be watching the match. Every chalkboard on every coffee shop and every bar is, is showing the Matildas, is showing the third phase game, is showing the final. You know, everyone's massively gotten behind it. Um, and yeah, another 75,000 at the stadium for the match, and I think it was over 11 million. Uh, watching it in some format so for a country that was kind of deemed not a soccer nation if you like um, that that definitely changed during the tournament uh, In a way uh, the America is a bit of a model for uh, not a soccer nation who uh, wins World Cups and then becomes a soccer nation off the back of the fact that the women's team captures the public's imagination Yeah and I, I mean I think sports quite different over in the US and um, you know, is it Title 13 or, or whatever it is, but that kind of ensures that funding for women's sport is, is on a par with men's in, in colleges and stuff. So I think football for women over there, soccer for women over there is, is quite a popular option. Um, but when you look at kind of men's sports, they've obviously got their national NFL and baseball and, and ice hockey and all that kind of stuff and basketball as alternative options. And, and it's kind of similar here with AFL and rugby, huge rugby country over here. Um, so for for so many, you know, and it's huge demographics, like really wide demographic people uh, tuning in and watching the Matildas. You know, there were AFL games paused at the beginning that were meant to kick off that 
were paused to watch the end of the shootout. And that kind of tells you how much it's permeated, you know, all different areas of society, including other key sports that they would kind of consider their national sports. The, the English FA have taken the opportunity today to release stats about how well they've managed to capitalise on the Euros, which was obviously a home tournament for them that they were successful in. And you can see that um, FAs around the world, some of them are actually well-placed and understand the opportunity to grow the game, to get more sponsors, but to also influence uh, governments to make sure that there is support so that the legacy will actually be something lasting. We, we hear so much about legacy of Olympics and there, there tends to be nothing beyond um, some empty buildings. But for a tournament where you're a home team who goes really deep into it, it can be a transformative moment for participation numbers. Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to think that will happen here in Australia because the players have spoken about the legacy and, and that they want to change society and they want to change opportunities for young people from grassroots up. Um, so, and there's also kind of that First Nations legacy as well. Um, both here and in New Zealand, First Nations have been involved in, you know, welcoming ceremonies at the beginning. And I think there's been promises around legacy for First Nations as well. I think there's maybe been some controversy or some talk around what that's actually going to look like. Um, but I do feel like the fact that they've gotten so far, the fact that they've made history, and I think the numbers and the way people have been viewing it has kind of gone viral around the world. There's, there's so many videos that have come out of, of people watching it. And you just, you can't shy away from that. That just doesn't turn off overnight. Um, so it is really, really important that they capitalise on that interest now. And, and once the tournament ends, you know, that they don't kind of take their foot off the gas. We saw what England did after the Euros. They wrote that letter to government. So whether there's some sort of, you know, moment where they approach government or whatever it is they might do to try and ensure that there is a legacy, um, I just... Being here, I just feel like it's not something that they're, that's going to go away and die away after everything they've done. Uh, so you are there, obviously, and uh, Con Hulan famously had that line about missing Italian IT because he was actually in Italy instead of being in Ireland. I, I presume you're uh, seeing and uh, consuming all of the media from the UK as well, so you have a good sense of just how much it has taken over. Even though the Premier League is back, it's leading all of the Sky Sports news bulletins, it's leading all of the sports bulletins, it's leading all of the news bulletins um, in England. So you can really sense that this is a team that has now had already crossed over but has cemented a place in the crossover as like one of the most important uh, cultural representations of Englishness. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think, you know, before the tournament, I think people were kind of nervous to predict how far England might go in this tournament. Um, and also not, you know, not too much was made of the injuries, the key injuries they were suffering within the squad because they didn't want to sound like an excuse because it is a world-class team which has a lot of funding from, you know, as, as other nations maybe go, they've got very, very good funding from their federation and huge expectation on them. Um, and they have another best tournament. Uh, so to be able to get that kind of that grit and that determination to see through these matches has really kind of stood to them as a, as a team. Um, you know, we've seen really lovely moments of sportsmanship from England and from other teams throughout this tournament as well. So in terms of like what they're doing on the world stage, um, you know, it's not just capturing the hearts at home, I think, but capturing the hearts of, and, and other teams as well around the world. And, um, you know, the coverage has been big. You know, we were kind of maybe a little bit worried around the time differences and where people are going to be tuning in and their numbers. And, and it seems to still be the case. I think over 7 million, I think it was, that watched um, the England-Australia game. Um, so maybe not quite as big as a home Euros, but I think you, you kind of wouldn't expect it to be as big given given the time difference. Um, but yeah, I think they've they've done really, really well, all things considered. Um, and to make another final 
in just less than over 12 months from the previous one. Uh, it's pretty special. We'll, we'll talk about the game and how the two teams match up in a moment, but uh, we wouldn't be two Irish people talking about an event on the far side of the world if we didn't ask uh, what the hell does this mean for Ireland. And like, it can only be a good thing that our best players will end up uh, playing in a league that has more money and more support and bigger audiences, but it's probably impossible now for our own National League not to feel dwarfed by the near neighbour which is something that we're very familiar with from the men's side so it's a double-edged sword a little bit yeah I mean you could look at it as being dwarfed or you could look at it as inspiration and you know I think the fact that the Irish team kind of went home disappointed with not getting more for me I'd rather that than them kind of getting battered and, and going home and saying yeah give us more money so we can we can grow the sport actually going home and saying look we've performed on the world stage we actually show that we belong on the world stage other teams are showing what you can do if you invest. And like the investment in the Lionesses, I mean, women's football in general, it's quite a short space of time. And when you look at what some of these teams with the right investment can do in such a short space of time, I'd like to think would inspire other nations. And um, with Ireland being so close, I'd hope that kind of seeing what can be done over just across the water and seeing what the Irish team have done at a World Cup will hopefully spark even more investment into the league back home. Uh, and that obviously needs to come with, you know, it's a, 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 a multi-pronged approach. Obviously, you need people who are the volunteers to be inspired to get involved and the players who want to play. But you need the, the clubs and official football, in our case, the FAI. Specifically, though, you need funding from government. This is a big opportunity. It's an open door for them to push. And that point you make about seeing how quickly you can have an impact. Hopefully, government are paying attention to that. Yeah, I mean, look what Ireland have done since 2017. That's a really short turnaround from what they were fighting for back then to what they've achieved in just kind of six years' time. Um, you know, you don't need more evidence that actually giving the right backing and funding and opportunities and facilities, you're going to see an, an improvement. Um, and they've done that, as I said, in such a short space of time. And obviously, I think the team have benefited from having a number of players playing professionally and playing professional football. Um, you know, so further investment is only going to drive it forward. And I you know, women's football is on this wave, this crest of a wave, and, and we're seeing investment coming in, but you need to back it now because it's only going to get bigger. You don't want to get left behind. Uh, let's talk about the game itself then. Um, if you are in the England camp, do you expect Lauren James to start or does she have to take place on the bench as a result of missing the last two games? There's been a really interesting debate here uh, around English media and, and that because obviously I don't think Alice Toon started that well this tournament. Um, and obviously Lauren James then kind of took her, her role uh, when England changed formation and then she was playing in that kind of number 10 role um, and obviously playing very well against China um, and then had that Nigeria game and got the red card and I think the performance of Ella Toon against Australia, not just the goal but the performance, kind of warrants her to start I think and I think England would be, you know I know we've seen changes from Serena Wiegmann throughout the tournament but I don't actually think we'll see many changes um, in this game and I think having someone like a Lauren James come off of the bench is a frightening, frightening prospect for any team. Um, so I, I would kind of, and I think many are saying this now, expect that Ella Toon will start and that Lauren James will come off the bench. OK, does that give England a slight sense of favouritism for you, Rachel, as an, as an analyst when you're weighing up the, the two teams? Because obviously... We, we, maybe we should tease this out a little bit more just to explain to everybody what Spain have gone through to get here notwithstanding the missing players they're still really really good oh yeah um, but they've not had their best tournament you know you can't forget that they lost 4-0 to Japan 
and Japan had something like 23-24% possession. So there are frailties there um, and I think they have a tendency to sometimes not be direct enough which is sometimes why we don't see maybe as many goals as we should given the amount of possession that they have. Obviously, like most you know, Spanish teams, they are a possession-based team. Um, and I think we've seen a player like Pariuelo who, who came on twice, uh, once against the Netherlands and against Sweden to score decisive goals. She's, she was quite direct. She, she came into that number nine role um, and you've got a player, a similar situation. Does she start like a Lauren James? She's got this kind of frightening way about her and she's the kind of player that you see coming off the sideline you think, oh God, she's coming on. This is worrying. So um, there are frailties, I think, in both sides. I think there are ways to exploit particularly the Spanish back line. Um, but England needs to be comfortable not being in possession. And I think they managed that quite well when they played Spain in the Euros and went on to beat them 2-1 an extra time. So it's going to be... It's going to be a really interesting one, a very, very difficult one to call, if I'm honest. And if this world was taught us anything, is that predicting outcomes is getting harder and harder. There will be a lot of people who are uh, tuning in on Sunday morning going, oh, it's Spain versus England. Spain are going to be the possession side. They're backbone by the Barcelona team. And um, we can expect the pattern to be what it is, but probably blissfully unaware of the incredible backstory of the uh, the rift between the Spanish manager and like most of Spanish football it seems uh, apart from uh, half the team and then the other half who still aren't talking to him it's one of the most bizarre stories that I can remember in a football World Cup where a team has been successful in these circumstances there's obviously been big rows between you know famous players and famous managers and World Cups before um, and teams and managers uh, and it, it happens like it's even the Dutch teams all the way back but they, they, they always crumble at some point Spain seem to be getting better despite the fact that the communication is bad. Yeah, and I think it kind of further validates his, his role or will for him validate his role in the position. Um, you know, because winning football matches, you know, it, it allows you to forget about a lot of things, it seems, um, as long as you're winning, you know, and things tend to maybe be forgotten about. I hope they're not because this was a, a hugely controversial situation when it all happened in the 15th. Um, stepped away from the national team and weren't called up to the national team and it was very it was very much a federation throwing players under the bus I think given they leaked the letter that they sent to them as opposed to the players putting it out there um, and it's been very much uh, they've been really hard-headed the Spanish federation um, which is not hugely surprising I'm pretty sure Jorge Vilda has a, his dad involved in the federation as well and Vilda's a technical director as well so technically the person who's that manager would be the technical director which is also Jorge Vilda so uh, a bit of a, a problematic situation there. Um, you know, and I think as people from kind of the outside, you look back at the Euros and you say, tactically, Spain weren't very good. Um, and it's like, you know, they're such a good team. They've got the best, some of the best players in the world and they should be winning. You look at their underage group, they've won the under-17 World Cup, the under-20 World Cup. If they win this, that will be three World Cups on the women's side that they'll have won um, in a row, uh, which is crazy. So it shows you the breadth of talent there. So coming to a final is what they should be doing. Um, but part of me does fear that should they win it, all is forgiven or all is forgotten. Um, and that maybe shouldn't be the way it should be because you're you're looking at some of the players on the sideline celebrating with the manager over on his own and there's a clear risk there. Has has he learned anything? Has he got better tactically from the Euros? I'd like to think so. I mean, he's realised that Pariuelos is pretty damn good off the bench um, and he did make some tactical changes after they got absolutely trounced by Japan um, but at the same time they came up against Switzerland in the round of 16 you know should should be winning that match realistically 
Um, so it is an interesting one, but and it and it's it's sad because should Spain go on to win, you've got some of the best players sat at home on the couch, not included. Um, and it's a real shame because you know the World Cup is the pinnacle of of any kind of football player's career. Um, so if they went on to win it for the first time, it's a real shame that you're not seeing their absolute best players out there lifting a trophy. So it seems like it, it's almost bizarre to think that they have a really good chance of winning it, and yet they do have a really good chance of winning it. Absolutely, um, they're a, they're a hard team to predict because you can't put to bed the fact that they are so good. Um, so they should be winning everything. And then sometimes you watch them play and you think, you know, they're all this possession for all this kind of the passes they make, the participation rates, possession rates. They're not getting an awful lot of goals on target um, or chances on target. It's often kind of trying to walk the ball into the back of the net almost. And it, it's almost just that one thing that's lacking, that little bit of directness. And you always think the next game is going to be when they, they find that and they click. And um, so you've always got that fear coming up against the Spanish team because they are fantastic players. Uh, it does sound like you're leaning towards an England victory. I, 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 if you're looking at the tournament, England haven't lost a game in the tournament. I know they've scraped through um, in some games and, you know, there are definite areas that can be exploited. I think after they changed uh, their formation to having a three at the back, I think that could benefit them against the likes of Spain. I think Spain are going to use the whip very well. They tend to. They're not, as I said, not always hugely direct. Um, and if England can be comfortable out of possession, which they've shown in the past, you know, they could do a job. I think it'll have been growing in the competition. I think after the, the China game, the Nigeria game was a big blip. They did not play well. But actually getting through it the way that they did has given them a huge boost. Um, and purely for the kind of cohesion in the team off the pitch, England should be more comfortable going into that situation as a more cohesive unit. Um, and also the fact that they have been in a final before. So on paper, you just edge them a little bit. But like I said, you cannot write off Spain. I think it was one of the English Barcelona players. I, I don't, I can't remember who was it. Uh, Lucy Bronzer or Kira Walsh was saying in the aftermath of the game about oh, we know how to win finals. Um, I was like, hey, okay, fair enough. At the international level, this is true. The most recent one, but um, you're up against a Barcelona team who are like festooned with Champions League medals, right? So it felt a little bit like oh, they don't matter. Those big, massive Champions League games where there's a huge amount of pressure on you as you represent your club. Like, I'm not sure that I, I give them a huge advantage because they've been through that one tournament. Like uh, when you consider how many medals the opposition actually has. True, yeah, and I think, you know, they're going to, England are going to be confident, they're going to want to appear confident, they're not going to come out into the media and be like, well, actually, yeah, we're quite worried about Spain. Um, but, you know, Lucy Bronze has won Champions League medals as well for Barcelona and for Lyon, um, Kira Walsh as well. There are winners in that team. Um, and I think sometimes with, it might only be one final, but often the case is breaking that kind of, because England were in three semifinals, that was their third World Cup semifinal. It's just breaking that moment and knowing you can do it and that that shift in mentality once you do it once um, and look like you said it's not a big advantage <laughs> it's a very 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 small advantage but when you're looking at these two teams together any small advantage is an advantage they're going to take it and they're going to use it to, to drive them forward the the injuries pre, pre-tournament um, that England have suffered does this suggest that the strength and depth that they've developed over the last couple of years is now really beginning to come to the fore and that actually they are going to be the new USA who are capable of coming to almost every tournament they go to and being a dominant force in world football for the next couple of years? Yeah, I think like when England played in the Euros, their biggest strength was their depth. 
Um, and I think with the injuries, you kind of wondered, was the death going to be as impactful uh, as we saw during the Euros? We also saw England during the Euros play the same starting 11 for every single game, which has never happened before. In this tournament, there's been a lot of changes and a lot of hurdles that they've had to overcome. Um, you know, you had the Kira Walsh injury against Denmark. You had the Lauren James red card. There was a lot of things that they had to adapt in tournament, which is not easy. And I think kind of is why England haven't played their best. Um, I don't think there's ever going to be a team like the USA again. I'm not sure anyone will, I mean, maybe Spain, but I'm not sure anyone's going to quite dominate women's football to the extent that they have done. You know, the USA used to be able to go through transition and still be beating teams while transitioning. They can't do that anymore. And that's kind of, I think, why they've gone out so early as they, they are transitioning at the moment. They've got a manager who's trying to, you know, make all the pieces of the puzzle fit. And it felt a little bit like he was trying to put square pegs in round holes, really, rather than, than playing the right players in the right plate positions. I don't think anyone's ever going to be quite that dominant. But I think England will be a force to be reckoned with for the next number of years because of the investment, because of the depth, because of the opportunities, the ex- expanding opportunities at kind of grassroots level and up is only going to help grow what they're doing now rather than hopefully not seeing any team going backwards. As we sit here on the eve of the tournament and you haven't covered the whole thing and, and obviously been uh, plugged into the evolution of the whole thing uh, of that England team over the last period of time, where are we now with regards to uh, the, the game itself? Like uh, Infantino's comments overnight, you know, uh, stereotypically stupid and misogynistic from the uh, most important person in FIFA and at the same time, I think it does sound like there are really good people at FIFA who are doing important work in terms of helping to grow the game. And, uh, you know, so there is there is actually really great stuff happening. Um, and maybe we need to ignore and, and, and fade the Infantino thing. Um, or maybe we don't. Maybe we need to talk about it and say that this is still a big issue. I don't know. I, given that we're here now and you can kind of look back um, with everything you know, what's the current state of play so for me, when they announced in 2019 that it was going to be expanding to 32 teams, and I was one of the people who, who was worried about that. I thought, was it too quick? I was still scarred by the Thailand drubbing the USA 13-0 in that 2019 World Cup. And actually, I was wrong. And I'm glad that I was wrong because one of the biggest takeaways for me has been the development of other nations that we maybe wouldn't have considered big threats to the top teams, I say in inverted commas. Um, and I think that's been huge because you're seeing some of these Team progressing so quickly despite their federation that you know you've got your Zambias your Nigerians your Jamaicans that aren't getting proper support and they're still performing on the world stage to, to such a high level and that's kind of a really good example of where the women's game is going and um, because time and again it's, it's proven that if you fund it and support it it's going to grow and it's going to thrive even in these teams that aren't getting the, the right funding and support and um, but at the same time, you kind of have to look beyond the, the pomp and ceremony and the excitement at the top, right? Because it needs to be going down to grassroots. It needs to be, you know, funding needs to be going back into grassroots levels, providing opportunities for girls to get into football and play football from all areas of society. And, um, you know, it needs to be kind of hitting at a, a diverse demographic of people in society. And I, I think that's where the growth needs to come as well. Is not just at the top, which is really exciting at a World Cup, but in the in the in between years when you don't have major tournaments, what is going on within football to grow it? Um, and yeah, I, I think probably the biggest takeaway for me and the biggest and the most enjoyable part of this tournament has been seeing those kind of underdog nations, Ireland being one of them, performing the way they have. Um, 
the English FA, as I said earlier, had released a, uh, a press release this morning saying 2.4 million more women and girls in England are participating in football in 2022-2023 compared to the prior season. Like, it's a phenomenal number to get your head around and it is phenomenal rate of growth. There's clearly a blueprint there that they've been able to use and you'd really hope that the FAI can use their contacts there to go, how exactly are you doing this? Uh, what can we learn? And obviously, tailor it for our own needs. But um, certainly, as you say, the the model is right there for everybody to see and it's clear as day it's working. Yeah, and like, I don't want to detract from the success of, of what's going on in England um, because they are leading the way in, in a, a huge number of areas. But, you know, you've still got to look at kind of equity across clubs in the top league. We don't have that kind of equity, you know. If you tear your ACL, for example, how well you recover can often depend on which club you're at, right? Which simple things like that, access to medical facilities, um, access to top training facilities, nutrition, coaches, all that kind of stuff. We need to start seeing a bit more parity and equity, I, I think, across teams, because at the moment, understandably, you've still got teams with the biggest budget and still get the best stuff. Um, and until we start to see that kind of filter down into leagues below, um, and that investment go into the league below, you know, that's when it's really going to all be, you know, the cogs of the wheel are all going to be moving. Um, because I don't think anybody's absolutely nailing it yet, but I do think the FA in many respects are leading the way. Uh, Sydney's supposed to be a great city. Have you had a good time there? Yeah, it's been amazing. I've seen a lot of Australia. <laughs> I've been on a lot of planes, um, but Sydney has definitely been one of the most enjoyable spots. And Brisbane, of course, there is a great Irish fan takeover at the fan zone in Brisbane. So I really enjoyed my time there as well. Um, but yeah, Sydney's a, a special place to be. I'm, I'm looking forward to the final. Are you hearing any gossip on who the next Ireland manager might be? <laughs> uh, God, I'll be honest with you. Like I'm so like focused in on the actual tournament that I'm missing so much other stuff in football. I feel like my brain capacity is, is at max. Um, but no, I haven't, I haven't heard any rumours that I'd be divulging, no. Okay, well, we shall uh, wait and see. And anytime you do get any, you're more than welcome back, Rachel. Great to have you with us. Thanks a million. <laughs> Good to know. Thank That's you. It. Rachel O'Sullivan there, uh, giving us the thoughts from Sydney this morning. A reminder, the Women's World Cup show on Off the Ball is with Shore Non-Stop Protection Deodorant, official sponsor of the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023. The Women's World Cup show on Off the Ball with Shore Non-Stop Protection Deodorant, official sponsor of the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023.